This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. And welcome back to the NASDAQ in New York City. Dan Loney with you here on Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 111. Business radio powered by the Wharton School. We are at the Cuba Opportunity Summit. Great to have you with us here on this special show coming to you from New York City. We've talked a lot uh, about how the race will be on once the doors to Cuba and the U.S. are opened up. But what about the effect that this will happen have on other countries as well, like the ones that have been able to do trade with Cuba during the length of the embargo. Canada is one of those countries. Mark Entwistle is a former Canadian ambassador to Cuba and is now a partner in the boutique Merchant Bank Acosta Capital. And we welcome him to the show. Great to have you here. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. It is interesting because we talk so much about how the, the relations between Cuba and the United States have been null and void for more than 50 years. Yet that hasn't been the case for so many other countries around the globe. Explain a little bit about how, how you've viewed this over the last couple of decades. It's actually one of the more curious aspects of, uh, of, of the whole Cuba situation because, of course, in the United States, there's often uh, a, a view that uh, Cuba's kind of an empty vessel. Yeah. It's, it's there to be filled up. It's isolated country, yet the rest of the world's there and has been there for a long time. Uh, the United Nations system's there. Uh, I lost count of how many embassies are there, foreign governments. Yeah. You can count on the fingers of one hand the number of countries that don't have a, a normal relationship. It's calibrated depending on what the issues of the day are, but there's a, 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 a normal relationship. Um, and uh, the, the, the business ebbs and flows. It depends on the commercial viability of projects. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of people there. I think there's a, a view often, too, that uh, when the trade and investment embargo is eventually lifted at some point in the future, <laughs> we're, we're, kind, we're, kind of, we're kind of in this a bit of this, uh, this uh, kind of uh, um, awkward zone between yeah. the expectations unleashed by the two presidents uh, yeah. last December and then what can actually happen. But uh, uh, I think there is sometimes a view that when U.S. business can return, there will be a gold rush bonanza return. Yeah. Um, some people may even have, you know, dancing sugar plums in their minds <laughs> of, of sort of a return to the good old days. Um, that's not exactly, I don't think, how it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, Cuba has, you know, existing business and commercial relationships with a lot of other folks who have been going on for decades now right. and reliable partnerships. And the United States will find its place. So then, then realistically, when these doors open up, whatever is pushed forward by a lot of the companies that will go into Cuba, the U.S. companies, Cuba is going to have to, in some respects, walk a little bit of a fine line because they, as you said, they have these existing relationships. They don't want to burn the bridges with them for what could potentially be that quote-unquote gold mine with companies coming from the United States. There's strong commercial advantage to, in some certain sectors for American companies, and of course, uh, they will have a competitive advantage wherever there's transportation costs involved sure, and, yeah. and supply of certain products and goods and services and that kind of thing. Um, and on some of the big strategic uh, uh, platforms in Cuba and pieces of business, uh, they can compete, obviously, they compete around the world with, with everybody. Um, 
I think you've uh, nailed, uh, hit the nail on the head in the sense of, uh, of Cuba managing its own economic development. Yeah. Um, one thing that's embedded quite deeply into the DNA of, uh, of now successive generations of Cubans and in certainly in the political leadership is that never again will there be a reliance on a single uh, overwhelming partner. Um, you know, we have to remember the history of Cuba and to truly understand the way the Cubans think, even now in 2015, you have to quite, you have to understand their history quite profoundly. Yeah. Um, where, you know, by the in the 1950s, you know, United States owned two thirds of the Cuban economy, it owned all the utilities, telephone companies, electrical companies, it owned 80% of the sugar lands, yeah. uh, et cetera. Um, if there was one lesson from the revolutionary period, and who know, and Cuba's evolving, it's going somewhere else. I don't even know if Cubans truly know exactly where it's going sure, right yeah. now. But if there is a lesson, which I think is fairly universally held, is that uh, that kind of um, dominant presence is not in the best interest of the country. So I think you'll find a much more jostly competitive uh, market than there is even even today. The Cubans who are always tough negotiators, always after the best deal, sure, yeah. for them will um, separate the, the wheat from the chaff. We are here at the NASDAQ in New York City. This is the Cuba Opportunity Summit, and you're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney with you. We're talking with Mark Entwistle, who is the former Canadian ambassador to Cuba and now a partner in the boutique uh, merchant bank for uh, called Acoustic Cap Capital. So in terms of, of what you have the expectations for when that door opens. For Acosta, what ends up being the, the, the best piece to this puzzle for them? Um, <clears throat> we do several things. We do, of course, classic advisory stuff sure. because uh, certainly in the United States, um, there's just, and for all the understandable reasons, there's just lots and lots of people who don't know about how Cuba works, what yeah. it's like, et cetera. You know, this is a byproduct of, of six decades of a trade and investment embargo and lack of human contact. Yeah. Um, not that there hasn't been, but in a mass sense. Um, so we have an advisory piece, and but but we also have a, a business development piece and an investment piece, where um, I think we've learned a lesson over the years working with the Cubans. I've been involved in the Cuba business for like 22 years of my life, yeah. <laughs> for both yeah. ups and downs. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm kind of my my horses, uh, my carts uh, tied to this horse in some ways. Um, uh, but there's phenomenal potential in Cuba, and that's why I've always been so uh, so interested in it. It's just such the pe Cuban people are so talented on so on so many levels. But um, um, one of the lessons, uh, the fundamental lessons I learned was you have to really listen to the Cubans, what they're telling you. This is what a lot of foreigners don't do. The general foreign um, approach to Cuba is to go pitch deals. Okay. You know, because, yeah. you know, they're brilliant and smart. They're smart, the smartest guys in the room sure. or smartest people in the room. And, uh, and you're going to go and convince the Cubans that they have to do, you know, whatever it is. Um, well, maybe they don't kind of want to do that. Right. They have other ideas of what their priorities are. So um, what we do at ACASTA a lot is uh, listen very carefully to the Cubans, what they tell us explicitly, what their priority interests are and then match those priority interests with exactly the right partners. And we're really uh, you know, in the deal engineering business, I guess, is, yeah. is, is the best way to put it. Was it even surprising to you when, when the official announcement came from the White House that the United States was going to start to try and develop normal relations with, with Cuba? Because, I mean, it had been almost six decades. And I think people, a lot of people in America, the ones that, that do follow it, just almost assumed 
that this was something that wasn't going to change. Oh, Dan, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I followed Cuba very closely, and uh, it took me totally by surprise. Yeah. I, I, they kept those, um, that first part of the conversation secret. Unbelievable. In a, in a way, I, I come from a political communications background. Yeah. I was press secretary to the Prime Minister of Canada for a number of years. How they kept that secret in three capitals. Yeah. You know, Washington and Ottawa and, and, and Havana is just, I don't understand it. In any case, it was kept secret, took everybody by surprise. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, really the cat's been set among the pigeons now, and uh, um, I, 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 I remain basically optimistic about this. I think the tone has changed completely. Yeah. The kind of, uh, of conversations that Roberta Jacobson, who is just here talking, um, and, and her Cuban counterpart, uh, Josefina Viral, there's a very professional uh, women who are leading this process uh, with the full political um, confidence of their governments. Um, uh, there are big thorny issues out there, but uh, I never thought I would see this day. I thought I'd go to my, my grave with the yeah. two ships passing in the night. But uh, I was, in fact, in Havana the morning of, Dece of December 17th. <laughs> and no, but I was guiding on, I got on a plane, okay. quiet as can be, business as usual, nothing was, you know, the, 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 no indication of any of this. Yeah. I got off the plane in Toronto, it's a three and a half hour trip. Blackberry, I still use a Blackberry because I'm, you know, patriotic yeah, Canadian. Yeah, yeah, and right. uh, uh, Blackberry, you know, is exploding with this stuff yeah. as as the two presidents uh, kind of uh, took the world by surprise and displayed a level of political leadership we don't see very often, frankly. I, I would think iPhone's an evil word in Canada <laughs> compared to compared to Blackberry. Blackberry's turning around. I, I think it actually is. But 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 with your background and having been with the Canadian government. Uh, what are the areas that you see that are the ones of maybe most importance for companies to really look at? I mean, when we talk about infrastructure, because you see, you know, the condition of some of the roads, you see the, the vehicles that are down there. Obviously, a lot of people know that there's not a lot of people that are connected to the Internet in Cuba. So that ends up being a big piece. We talked about the medical sector on this show uh, as well, that, you know, you have so many medical schools down there, but there's so much more that could be done. I mean, there's so many pieces that seem to be in play here. Can you put your finger on maybe one or two that maybe are the most important? Um, I think maybe what I would do is put, put you know, if I, if I had to pick among, among all the various uh, uh, things that you've just laid out, which I think was, frankly, very astute of you, because Thank this you. is all the kind of, of, um, of uh, opportunity that, that exists in Cuba in many ways. Um, uh, clearly, I think a principal priority, and I think even the Cubans would agree with this as well, is around the hospitality sector infrastructure issues, okay. uh, without question. Um, the trend lines towards uh, increased U.S. travel uh, by U.S. citizens are just you know so clear. Uh, Cuban economists, by the way, uh, um, said last year there were about 90,000 Americans went. This year alone, with the expanded categories and the, the general license and the sort of self-declaring, I'm on a humanitarian mission or I'm here, any American who truly wants to go to Cuba now yeah. with, with any vague creativity yeah. can, can get on a plane, can figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so in many ways, the travel uh, restrictions are, are, are already you know being removed uh, kind of step by step. There'll be about 500,000 Americans who will go this year. Four million, the U.S. Uh, Association of Travel Agents predicts in the first year with the yeah. lifting of the travel ban. This is, the Cuban infrastructures literally cannot absorb 
this volume of people, yeah. whether they're Americans or non-Americans. And of course, there's you know three million foreigners who go there already from, sure. from other parts of the world. That piece is critical. And I am a little bit keen, agriculture's critical, all kinds of stuff. I'm a bit keen, too, on the knowledge industries. One thing the Cubans have done over the last uh, 10 years, uh, or no more than that, 15, 20 years, was to make a, a strategic decision that is part of the historic diversification away from sugar and the okay. monoculture of sugar. Uh, they would develop uh, capacity for, uh, I guess I would say, knowledge-based industries. So you've got IT and you've got the biotech pharma yeah. sector. And I think there's just one heck of a lot of brain power in Cuba um, to be partnered with, with which to be partnered. Biotech, we've talked on this show uh, over the last few months about how that right now is is a viable sector and how much more it has the opportunity to grow once you get the, the pieces from the United States to, to figure sure, in as well. Sure, absolutely. And one of the great challenges, I know the biotech sector very well because I was involved in a, in a company that, that was very involved in it. And, uh, um, you know, the fundamental challenge for the Cubans is not thinking up all the, the, the not making the scientific discoveries because they don't have a lot of bells and whistles in yeah. their labs, but this is very basic science, yeah. which we don't tend to do as much anymore. <laughs> you know, this is really like understanding the actual science of how things work. Yeah. And uh, they've uh, managed to, to make multiple discoveries of all kinds. The intellectual property in biotech, Cuban yeah. bi biotech and pharma is quite stunning. Um, their fundamental challenge, of course, is, and this is where partnering with U.S. companies could be so valuable, um, is around uh, the commercialization and marketing and uh, the clinical trials that allow you to gain the confidence of the markets and, and, and the whole capital raising side to support an industry like that, which they can't, that part of it they can't do because the global capital markets don't have the confidence in the Cuban um, system, sure. frankly, right now. Yeah. That, they need partners. That kind of piece could, could uh, uplift uh, Cuban biotech and pharma obviously of great benefit to the partner company as well because of access to the uh, intellectual do, property. Do the Cuban people, I mean, having been there uh, so many times yourself, do the Cuban people realize the shift that, that could be potentially on the way in the next years? How much, first of all, how much has it been publicized in, in Havana uh, and around the island in terms of the U.S. and Cuba talking about opening these doors? And, and then how much, what's been the reaction by the people in Cuba? Sure. Um, everybody in Cuba knows about this. Yeah. Everybody. Um, it's widely publicized. It's not yeah. hidden in any way. Um, and uh, um, I think on balance, Cubans are very excited by the process. Yeah. Um, like anybody, I think all of them would think that a, that a, a more normal and, and, and open relationship with the American people would be a good thing. Sure. Um, so I think they're, they're, they're generally quite a Quite, quite, quite excited by that. Um, Cuba's been changing, you know, well before December 17th, uh, and and I think you know, folks on the U.S. side of the equation, you know, need to understand that Cubans have been watching their own government calibrating and in changing and opening its domestic economy, not at lightning speed, what would to many of us appear kind of glacial, but in a Cuban context, the changes have been quite significant. Yeah. And, and you can go through them. There's just a whole list of them. I won't, I won't bore your listeners with them right yeah. now. But for the last 15 years, Cubans, in a step-by-step -step process, have been 
um, watching their d domestic economy liberalize. They uh, all of uh, lots of the irritants that they had with the Cuban government have all been removed. Yeah. That you know the, they can freely travel if a third country will give them a visa. Sure. So the onus is now flipped. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. You know yeah. the Cuban government was quite clever about that one because <laughs> now we have to deny visas to right. Cuban citizens. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Puts it on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but it's in many ways Cuba is unrecognizable from what it was even even ten years ago. And I think Cubans uh, believe that they're a country in evolution and and movement. There's a sense of movement there. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on. I greatly appreciate the time. Uh, you're welcome. Great information. Thanks very much. You're welcome. All the best. Take care, Dan. Mark Antwistle, who, as we mentioned, uh, former uh, Canadian ambassador to Cuba, now partner in the boutique uh, merchant bank Acosta Capital. Take a break, and we'll have more from the uh, Cuba Opportunity Summit in New York City on the, at the NASDAQ in just a minute. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.